Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner and today my guest is Alex Howard and we're going to be talking about decoding your fatigue. Alex Howard is the founder and chairman of the Optimum Health Clinic, one of the world's leading integrative medicine clinics specializing in fatigue with a team of 25 full-time practitioners supporting thousands of patients in 50 plus countries, the OHC team has pioneered working with patients remotely since 2004. Alex has published academic research and publications such as the British Medical Journal, Open in Psychology and Health, and is the author of Why Me? My Journey from ME to Health and Happiness and Decode Your Fatigue, a clinically proven 12-step plan to increase your energy, heal your body, and transform your life. Alex is the creator of the Therapeutic Coaching Methodology and since March of 2020 has been documenting his therapeutic work with real-life patients via his Therapy with Alex Howard YouTube series. In the last few years, Alex has created some of the largest online conferences in uh, the health and mind-body markets, including the Fatigue Super Conference and the Trauma Super Conference. Alex's online conferences have been attended by over a half a million people. I always enjoy connecting with Alex Howard, and I know that you will find this podcast extremely insightful, so enjoy the show. Welcome, Alex, to the podcast. Thank you, Christian. I always really enjoy our conversations. So thank you for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. So your word has gotten out there and I am so grateful that you're so passionate about this topic of trauma, as well as this topic of, you know, fatigue. And, you know, we both see these patients, you have a, a clinic, you have a lot of offerings, uh, not only for patients to do online courses, but also with practitioners and teaching them. But really, we see very similar patients, right? And very similar community, people who have been struggling for a lot of years, having fatigue, having chronic illnesses, having this nebulous diagnosis. And you have a really wonderful approach on how you really get to the root, I would say, because the root cause is what we're both passionate about. And so before we dive into your brilliance and the work that you do, I would just love to hear from you. Like, how did this path come to you? Like, how did you really start to specialize in these topics of fatigue as well as trauma? Yeah, well, I think like a lot of people working in this area, it wasn't like I sat there in my teenage years and I had this vision that I was going to become a, a health practitioner. I found myself just before my 16th birthday with totally debilitating fatigue symptoms. And at the time, had no reference point for what that was. Of course, I went and saw my general practitioner doctor, and I was told, you've got a virus, you need to rest, you know, it, it might take three months. And I remember at the time thinking, I kind of did the math, like three months, it was the beginning of the summer holidays, I just finished a bunch of exams. I had three months off before I went into the next stage of my schooling. And I was like, great, like that's, that's my summer gone. The thought that it wouldn't be three months, it would be seven years at the time would have been, I couldn't have digested that. And the first couple of years, I was, my grandmother was very proactive and actually, you know, looking back, quite pioneering in her appetite for an interest in alternative health and medicine and went and saw a bunch of different people, nutritionists, naturopaths, and obviously the more mainstream medical uh, pathways as well. And over those first couple of years, really, Nothing changed physically, and perhaps I got a bit worse, but psycho-emotionally, the trauma of suffering from a medically unexplained illness where my whole life was really disintegrating around me. Because particularly when you're a teenage boy, your friendships, your sense of community is all tied to your physicality, to be able to play sports, or I used to play the guitar in various bands. And not being able to do those things also was incredibly 
isolating. And after a couple of years of this, it wasn't that I was actively planning how to end my life. I just couldn't face a future of totally debilitating fatigue, crippling muscle pains at times, dreadful sleep problems, which was kind of ironic. I spent the whole day exhausted, then I couldn't sleep. And I really, I reached the point where I realized I was helpedized by a conversation I had with, with my uncle that if I wanted the circumstances of my life to be different, I was going to have to be the one to change them because I'd already seen all of these practitioners. I'd, I, as, as a child, I only, I was famous in my family for only eating two vegetables, peas and potatoes. And I would be willing to sit at the dinner table for hours refusing to have a tiny slice of carrot or tomato or something. And within a few, within a few months of, of having this debilitating chronic fatigue, I was, I was vegetarian eating every possible salad and vegetable because I, I was willing to do anything to, to, to turn the situation around. Anyway, I had this conversation and it, it really, it was a little bit like my life was going down one path and I made it, I just went in a completely different direction. And I ended up getting very interested in nutrition. I did multiple different diets. I was taking, not that I recommended it, but at one point, I think 70 supplements a day. I mean, I just, I was trying everything. I was meditating for multiple hours a day. Sometimes I was, I got into yoga. And the thing that probably shocked me the most was I got into psychology. And if you told me, in those first few years that I've been ill, that there was a psychological component to the physiological experience that I was going through. It's probably one of the few things that would have given me a temporary lift of energy to have a physical fight because of the rage and the frustration of being told what you're experiencing is not real. And it's all in your mind. And like, it's like some sort of phantom limb pain that you don't have the limb anymore, but you still have pain. Therefore, the pain can't be real. Like somehow you're making up these, these, these symptoms. I was able to, over time, suspend that kind of resistance and got really interested in the impacts of some of my own childhood traumas and the trauma of living with a medically unexplained illness and the fact that my nervous system was in the exact opposite state to what I needed to be to heal. And over a journey of, I mean, it, it's not it's not a very inspiring story for some people when I say it was a five-year journey from that point. But part of the reason why it was a five-year journey from that point is that I was trying to navigate a journey with no map. And I was trying to figure out how to heal my body, but it was like a puzzle with all the things in the wrong places. And it took that time to decode my fatigue, to really figure out there are the different stages to the recovery process and things that help at one stage can make things worse, worse at another stage. There are different subtypes, there are different bodily systems. And it was a, at times, incredibly painful, laborious process of trying to make sense of all of this. You know, in a sense, one of the gifts of my life these days as a practitioner with, you know, a team of 25 full-time practitioners is there's that constant learning and, and testing and trialing, which I sort of started before growth hacking was was a thing and, and just in the laboratory of my own body and yeah, figured out a few things along the way. And there wasn't one magical answer. There wasn't one single thing. There was different things in different ways. And then really there was a point along the way where I, I found myself thinking that if I find a way out of this, I want to dedicate my life to helping other people 
in the same situation. Mm. And look at here you are now, right? Thank you so much for sharing that. And as I listen to you, you know, we're always on our path, right? Even though we don't realize it. And I think that what you said is really poignant and so needed still in that, you know, there's an increased awareness, right? More people, unfortunately, have chronic illness. There's more resources online in the last decade than there ever been. There's conversations about Lyme and mold and trauma and, you know, vagus nerve and this and that, but still once you kind of get that insight, there's still the path to recovery, right? And I feel that in my work, I'm very um, passionate about and I really am dedicated to on this journey of like, how do we make this more elegant for patients? How do we really make this process smoother, shorten the time, right? From diagnosis in this alternative space to then really getting, you know, your life back, right? And so I just so um, am grateful that you you reflected about these these maps because I think um, without a roadmap, right? We can be very lost and too many choices out there, right? There's too much information out there sometimes that can work to um, not our advantage in that we can not stay the course with things or switch gears too long or, you know, constantly want that magic pill or that magic treatment, you know, to get our life back. So no, I um, no, I see the wisdom in your journey and curious. So you, you see Decode Your Fatigue, right? So that's the name of your book that came out um, as we're recording this, uh, you know, last fall. And in that book, you, you, you share your maps, right? You share these maps of fatigue. So can you walk us through this part of your process? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I knew for years, I wrote my first book in 2002, it was published in 2003, which was really the the story of my own recovery journey. And it was always clear that at some point I would write a book not the kind of the personal story, but the, the the approach and the protocols as we develop them over the years at the Optum Health Clinic. I didn't plan on it being nearly 20 years, but, but in a sense, I put it off for so long because it just felt so enormous. And how do you simplify all of these different protocols and processes and ways of working into a simple and easy to follow map? And so What I realized is, firstly, there's two maps. There's a map to decode fatigue, and there's a map for the recovery and healing journey. And like all maps, they're imperfect. The purpose of a map is not that it has, if we're trying to, you know, if I'm trying to navigate a journey from where I am here in London to where you are in in, in the States, it's like that map just has the kind of the cliff notes. It has the key pieces along the way. If it had every bit of detail, the map would be the size of the journey. It's an imperfect map, but like all maps, it's a very helpful map because it helps you figure out, well, actually, these are the pieces that I need to focus on. And then within those, there's protocols and there's there's, there's all the other details that, that go with it. So when we're working clinically, a big part of our work is really to take all of these different maps and pieces and figure out. Firstly, the map to decode someone. Why has this person got this set of symptoms when somebody else may have the same set of symptoms for an entirely different trigger and and, and set of causes and then have that map to recovery? So to break the maps down, the map to decode. Firstly, genetics. We know that the research shows that there is a genetic element in fatigue-related conditions. They are not genetically caused, and we all, I'm sure people will be familiar with the science of epigenetics, that just because you have a genetic predisposition doesn't guarantee an outcome, but certainly there are some genetic elements, but they're modest. There's, there, when, if you have 
um, identical twins, there is an increased probability of if one gets chronic fatigue of the other getting chronic fatigue, but it's by no means a guarantee. So genetics play a part. I think sometimes the danger of genetics is people use them in a disempowering way. They're like, oh, well, it's genetic. Therefore, I can't do anything about it. And I think that point that how you live your life will determine how your genes are manifested, but also we can turn off genes and we can have big impacts on how those are responding in our life. So genetics is the first piece. Then we have personality patterns. These are the ways that we relate to ourselves, the ways that we relate to other people, and the ways that we relate to the world around us. This is not saying that these personality patterns cause someone to have fatigue. What they do is they deplete and weaken and overwhelm the system, which increase the probability and certainly have an increased impact. So in the book, I talk about five different personality patterns. And just briefly, they are the helper pattern. This is where we make everyone else's needs more important than our own, and our self-worth is derived by what we do to for others to help and support them. Classic example It's the end of the day, we're driving home from work, we're feeling tired, our body says, I need rest. We get a phone call or we get a message from a friend of ours saying, I had a bad day, can you come and have dinner and support me? And it's not like they're in genuine crisis and actually we would drop anything to help them. It's like their need for support is similar to our need to rest. But because we're a helper, we make their needs more important than our own. If that's a way that we consistently live our life, that becomes very depleting because we're consistently ignoring our body's messages for our need to help and be there for other people. Second is the achiever pattern. This is where we define our self-worth by what we do and what we achieve. So we're always pushing, we're always driving ourselves to do more. Body says rest, mind says got to achieve this goal. Again, we're consistently ignoring the messages from our body. There's then the uh, anxiety pattern. This is where we have this kind of inherent sense that the world is not safe. And our nervous system then speeds up to try and think our way to a feeling of safety. So we often live in this tired and wired, constantly activated state. Uh, The fourth is the controller. This is where we need to control other people, the environment around us to be able to feel safe. So again, a lot of effort and stress goes into that. And the fifth is the perfectionist. This is where our sense of safety and our sense of lovability is tied to always doing things perfectly right. Again, body says rest, but I've got to get this thing perfectly right. Ignore my body to push to do that. So these personality patterns are what we call energy depleting psychologies. They're ways of relating to ourselves, to others, to the world, which are inherently draining. Mm -hmm. So we take the genetics, we take the personality patterns, we then have the loads placed on our system. These loads can be environmental loads, things like toxic mold. They can be um, loads in our immune system like uh, Lyme or co-infections. They can be uh, adverse childhood experiences like trauma loads that can happen. But these are the, the the loads that often when it comes to diagnosing fatigue are the things that get focused on. It's a little bit like they're the final straw that breaks the camel's back or to use a, a metaphor that I like, our body's like a boat and each of these loads are loads on the boat. 
And it's rarely one load that causes the bow to sink. It's it's the too many loads together. And then you have the load of living with a medically unexplained illness and what's wrong with me and why it's wrong with me and should I rest and should I push through? And often the bad advice people get then becomes a whole additional load. So when it comes to decoding why someone has fatigue in the first place, we have to look at the genetics. We have to look at how they've lived their life, like the personality patterns, and then the various loads on their on their system, the result of this is the impact on their different bodily systems. Some people that impact is on the digestive system, other people it's on their hormones and their endocrine system, others it's the impact on their on their immune system. So then we have to look at the different systems and what impact there has been there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's excellent. And I have, you know, a few questions about that, but I think you may answer them. And okay, now we have like, we've decoded it. And now how do we create this roadmap? But I love how you kind of weave in this, you know, genetic, epigenetic, and then the personality piece, you know, it's very different on um, what I'm hearing than like what we would call in homeopathy, like miasm, but you know, like kind of like a modern kind of approach to like, how we respond personality wise to, you know, life in our environment and probably the question I'm noodling around is like is there a optimal personality type right <laughs> that we're or that we're trying is we're striving for or that we want to help guide people to so that they can be in a you know more resilient role in their in their life. Yeah so none of these personality patterns are inherently bad and wrong. They're all a curse and they're all a blessing in a yeah. sense. So, you know, people people say, okay, but how about anxiety? There's nothing good about anxiety. Well, there are good things about anxiety if it's used in the right way. One is preparation. Like there's lots of students at exam, exam time that don't have enough anxiety, which is why they don't revise and why they don't prepare. The message of anxiety is there's something coming up in the future that I need to take action towards. Of course, the problem is when that becomes distorted and we're creating danger where there's where, where there's, there's not danger. Mm-hmm. The, you know, being a, an achiever or a helper is not wrong. It's how to, in a sense, run these patterns rather than these patterns run you. So being someone that's driven or someone that is empathic and cares in a sustainable, healthy way is a gift to the world. But that's understanding one's motivations of why am I doing it? Am I helping this person because ultimately I believe that I'm not lovable and unless I do this, no one's going to be there for me? Or am I helping them because my cup's full, like I feel resourceful and I care for this person and I want to do something that is of service to them but also feels good to me in the process of of doing it. So it's less about right and wrong of different personality types and it's more about how do we live our personality type in a way that's healthy and sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And that makes a, a lot of sense. We want to come, you know, from this place of abundance, right? And not the, that we have, you know, these depleting factors, right? And we're um, working from this depleted state. So no, I definitely see the difference. And of course, we want to cultivate like compassion and empathy. And, you know, we want to be able to help when called and, and feel stress when we need to be stressed. And then, you know, that goes away. It's just these prolonged periods of time where we don't shut that off. I see that for sure. 
So then Alex, so, okay, you have a patient in front of you, you know, you've had their like, you know, their genetics, you see a few snips that you need to address. You see, okay, I, I see commonly the perfectionist or the helper, you know, so I see those personality types a lot in my practice. So let's just say the perfectionist we pick, and then let's just say we have like a lot of digestive stress from combination of, you know, parasitic or fungal infections, maybe some, you know, past mold exposure affecting their immune system and making them a little bit more prone. So you have this like picture, right? And you've decoded it. And then what happens? Yeah. So that that decoding is often really important in making sure that those things are not still in the way of recovery. And we need to, if there are bodily systems impacted, we obviously need to, need to address those. But as we come into the map that we use to recovery, there's really three key pieces to it. There's states, and I'll come back to that in a second. There's different stages of the recovery process. There's then how we sequence the interventions based upon the stage of the recovery process we're at. When I say states, what I mean is for the body to heal, it has to be in a healing state. The body could be in a state of stress, so sympathetic nervous system arousal, or it can be in a state of healing or parasympathetic uh, system arousal. When we're in a state of stress, it directly impacts everything that's happening in our system. And if we have some more time, we can come to some of that in a little bit. But one of the ways that I put it is for the body to heal, it has to be in a healing state. And if we're not in a healing state, we can take all the best supplements, eat all the best food, and we'll react to the supplements. The food won't get absorbed. Like We have to get the body into a healing state for healing to be able to happen. And often people come in and they go, oh, I've, I've done that stuff. I've, I meditate. I've done the... But you can feel with them. They, they might have done stuff, but their body's not in a healing state. And our experience at the Optum Health Clinic is until you get that healing state, everything else is so much harder in terms of the recovery process. So we emphasize very heavily that state and making, and there's different ways that we can do that. We then look at three different stages of the recovery process. This, this was figured out in the um, some of the early years of Optimum Health Clinic, and we were noticing that there were we would do certain interventions with, with, with a particular patient. They would do really well, and then we'd have a patient with basically similar symptoms, but we do the same intervention, and they get way worse. Or someone will be doing a set of interventions, and they'd really help them, and then further down the path, those same interventions were now making them worse. It was like the breakthrough at one stage became the limitation at the next stage. And what we realized was there are different stages to the recovery process, which are the first stage being what we call the deep healing stage or the crash stage. This is where the body just needs lots of deep rest. And you have people that come in that they really fight that stage. Like they just, they won't surrender to the rest their body needs. And that in of itself becomes a problem. At that deep rest stage, people need a lot of sleep. You have to be careful not to do too much heavy detoxing work. The body needs to be supported in that, in that deep resting. But again, breakthrough at one stage becomes a limitation. The next stage, you find someone's getting that deep rest and then a little bit of energy starts to come back. But the sign of the energy coming back is they're now more anxious before they could sleep and now they can't sleep and they're becoming more irritable. And what's happening is they've moved to stage two. 
Stage two being the tired and wired stage. This is where you can feel exhausted, but your whole system's agitated the whole time. There's more energy than there was at stage one, where there wasn't energy to do anything, but the energy's gone to the nervous system and the energy's therefore not being used for healing. At stage two, we have to particularly work on things like pacing because people can do a bit more, but as soon as they do too much, they then crash quite heavily. So managing those activity levels becomes important. There is a bit more capacity in the system, so we can do a bit more of some of the challenging kind of protocols in terms of detoxing, but we have to go gently and carefully still. And then one moves from, and and really the key at stage two is that calming of the nervous system, managing of activity, and we start to get to the kind of nuts and bolts of what's happening on a physiological level. And then at stage three, at the reintegration stage, it's, it's someone, again, has more energy, But in a sense, at stages one and two, often one has to shut the world out a certain amount and they have to really focus on their healing. A lot of these underlying personality patterns that we talked about, the anxiety achiever, helper, controller, perfectionist, they've sort of been a little bit on sabbatical. And suddenly we've got a bit more energy and we're going back into the world, but we don't really know how to go back into the world in the new way. So these old patterns often start resurfacing and we get a bit more energy and then we go and do way too much and then crash back down again. So we have to work on these patterns, particularly at that stage. We can do certainly more challenging protocols again because there's there's more resilience that's there in the system. Not everybody goes through, you know, it's a map, it's not always perfect, but generally speaking, people go through these stages over the path of their recovery process. But also if people have crashes, they cycle back through the stages, sometimes over a, a stage a day or a stage a week. But we certainly see that 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 cycling. If people don't go through each stage, again, there can be problems. If someone doesn't ever go to that deep rest stage, it's like they just get stuck at stage two. And they what we can find is we calm the system and they get more tired and they start going, oh, my God, it's all gone wrong. Like, this, is, this is what we want to have happen because – you were tired and wired, now you're just tired, mm-hmm. which means that when you're just tired, you're actually able to get that rest and get that healing. Mm-hmm. So understanding the stages and the stage people are at, we find incredibly helpful to then dictate what interventions that, that we use. So, to, so there's, there's the state, there's the stage, then there's the sequence of how we do intervention. The state has to come first. We have to get the healing state. The stage is then what helps determine the sequence of how we we do things, both in terms of making sure there are fundamentals that are in place first. So often many of the people we work with will come having seen multiple practitioners and they come because of our reputation to help patients that have tried many things that haven't worked. So they come and they want to immediately go into the really kind of fancy, sexy kind of stuff that what we're doing in certain areas. And then they're a little bit disappointed because they start off with, we're like, but we haven't got the fundamentals in place. For example, we're not going to go into a heavy detox process while your digestion absorption is not working properly. So focusing on core bodily systems, getting fundamentals in, in place, and that then sequencing is really then important to be able to recognize what people need at those those different places so there's the state there's the stage there's the sequence and then that's the healing impact 
on those bodily systems. Mm-hmm. So if we look back at so the map to decode, we've got to understand the genetics, the personality patterns, and the loads. That's the impact on the systems. Then it's the state, it's the stage and the sequence to heal those bodily systems that have been impacted. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Um, that I know your life's work, right? You know, all you know, and, and these maps, you know, which is incredible. And I, I think you're integrating a lot of, you know, um, concepts and kind of breaking them out in a way that I think often is not done in in the world of chronic illness. You know, especially you see a patient, they've seen twenty doctors, they've been sick for a decade. You just want to share and give them everything. And that you know, a lot of my work is prioritization too. But I, I see that like we sometimes don't take these other factors. And enough into account. There's a mentor of mine, Dr. Rob Caskey would say the right remedy at the right time with the right support, you know, like this whole timing is everything I think in, in these patients, you know, recovery. And so I have some questions if you don't mind uh, around the um, recovery map, because I, I think a lot of people are, you know, curious. And of course we want to share how they can dive deeper with you as well during the podcast, but what is like maybe one or two of your favorite things to share within the state, you know, like getting people in this regular healing state like or do you have any go-tos or favorites that work really well for um, your community yeah and in fact before i come to that i just want to give a tiny bit more context on on the state piece because often people you know there's lots of research that's been done over the years around the impact of stress on the immune system so a lot of this research is like students at exam time and they see that there's a reduction in natural killer cell activity because of the stress of exams and they We know that research, and we also know the research about stress in the digestive system. But I think some of the really exciting research that's happened in recent years is Dr. Robert Navio's work around cell danger response, because one of the things that we start to see is our mitochondria, which are our body's kind of cellular energy production, like the power stations within our cells that make our energy, they actually have two functions. And what everyone's probably aware of is making our energy But our mitochondria have a second function, which is danger signaling. When our body is under threat, it's the job of our mitochondria to spread that danger signal within our body. When our system's under threat, it will prioritize danger signaling over energy production. So when we're in what I've come to call a maladaptive stress response, a stress response which is healthy in certain contexts that's become maladaptive so to give an example of that it's like you and i are walking down the street and we're going out to to a restaurant for dinner and then we don't see the huge london bus that's thundering down the street we get a massive hit of adrenaline and cortisol and that stress response is entirely helpful in fact it's probably going to save our lives because it allows us to leap back onto the onto the pavement and get and get away from from the bus But when we live in a consistent state of stress and anxiety, that healthy stress response has become maladaptive. And that maladaptive stress response is then telling our mitochondria to prioritize the stress response over energy production. So turning off that stress response is not just going to improve immune function. It's not just going to improve digestion. It's going to directly impact upon our energy metabolism and and production. So in terms of go-tos, to to answer your question, in in terms of, of, of working with that, there's lots of different ways of of coming at it and i i tend to particularly focus on three key areas the first is that we've got to have practices that help us train and calm our mind and our nervous system and 
meditation, visualization. There's lots and lots of science and research of showing the benefits. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly a fan of embodied meditation. So rather than transcendental practices where we're trying to get out of our experience, I prefer practices that help us become more connected and more in our bodies because part of it is also learning to listen to our bodies. And if you're transcending your body and your body says you're tired, you're not even going to hear the message. So learning to connect and to be grounded and to be present, I think is really important. The second piece is we have to learn to retrain those maladaptive thought patterns that are perpetuating the maladaptive stress response. So for example, body says rest, mind says got to go and finish this thing. We've got to have a way of stopping that pattern. Or body has symptom, mind goes into, oh my God, why have I got the symptom? What do I do? Will I ever recover? We have a way of changing that pattern. Or our mind goes into a sort of catastrophe. There's lots of different patterns that come in partly just through through suffering from a a medically unexplained chronic illness, but also the sort of life stress that people deal with. So we need to have ways of retraining those thought patterns. And there are various different ways of doing that, but there's an approach that I've developed over the last nearly 20 years around learning to catch thought patterns, to be able to stop them, and to be able to, in that moment, practice retraining and calming our, our system. One of the ways to look at it is, the meditation practices will help calm things in the moment, but then they will So it's almost like our, our stress levels are here and we bring them down. But then you, as soon as you stop meditating, it just goes back up again. So we have to have the ways of catching those patterns of thinking that then cause the system to, to, to reactivate. The third piece that I find is incredibly important is one of the reasons why we've ended up in a maladaptive stress response is often there's been a lot of feelings and emotions in our body, which we didn't know how to feel. We didn't know what to do with. And the safest thing to do, like the best thing at the time to do to help us survive was to go into our mind. Mm -hmm. It's like our nervous system sped up as a self-protective response to those traumas and those feelings and emotions. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years is People that have done programs and approaches that have just focused on these first two pieces, they've learned to calm their mind, they've learned to catch these patterns without dealing with the trauma piece, without dealing with the emotions, they just spend forever using these techniques. But as soon as they get calm, they're wired again because their system is trying to get away from the feel, or they just can't use those approaches because as soon as they calm, they start to feel all the stuff that they're trying to get away from. So learning to metabolize, to process, to digest our emotional history is what allows us to have a much more permanent healing state as opposed to a sort of healing state for a moment, but then keeps on evaporating. So We've got to learn to calm the system. We've got to learn to break the patterns. But then we've also got to learn to process and metabolize the emotions and trauma that are held in the system. I am so glad you articulated that. I, um, I'm a student of all of this and I you know, share this with my patients and try to practice a lot of this in my own life as well. And I love the work of, you know, let's say Dr. Joe Dispenza and Lynn McTaggart and, you know, these wonderful people who are bringing the science of the power of our thoughts and the power of visualization. And the thought that keeps coming up is exactly what you shared. It's like, how do we know that we're thinking the right thing, you know, for our high 
highest good in that it's not out of a trauma body or trauma mind, for lack of a better articulation. Um, And then like to really sustain that vision. It's almost like step one should be metabolizing these emotions, making sure that we're really creating from a whole uh, place. I mean, I mean, that's life's journey. We're not going to be perfect, but we see life reflected back to us. If we keep seeing the same thing and why isn't this changing? Why this is this changing? There's just more to go, you know, into that, you know, looking at our blueprint, right? Looking at where, where the software system still needs to be corrected, you know, but I, I love how that you're bridging those two. Cause I, I haven't heard people say that yet. And, and that's been a, a thought in my mind of how to combine those two aspects of our, the power of our ability to create. There is great wisdom in patterns and our responses. Like they were often the best and sometimes the only option we had to respond to the events and the traumas. And when I say trauma, I mean trauma in a very broad sense. I mean, yes, people can have those more classic PTSD traumas, but I mean more the developmental traumas of everyday life that we all experience in our own ways that, you know, we develop the responses and the coping strategies then we normalize to those. And the problem is the thing that protected us when we were younger is now the thing that imprisons us as an adult. So we built these walls around us to keep the world out and that felt safe, but now we're trapped in. And so we have to learn to understand and to heal those those patterns. And just to track it back to the, the fatigue piece as well, I am in no way saying that these personality patterns or this maladaptive stress response or unresolved emotional trauma is the cause of someone's fatigue or the only factor in someone's fatigue. You know, at the Optimum Health Clinic, we have you know 25 practitioners. Over half of those are functional medicine trained nutritional therapists. That's an incredibly important piece of the jigsaw. It just so happens that partly where we're going in the conversations, the psychology piece, because that's part of my specialism, but it's also often the piece that people miss. And even if someone's causation is almost entirely physiological. Let's say that that someone was bitten by a tick and they you know, have got a chronic Lyme issue going on and they're living in a, a mold kind of ridden house. And that's the that's a very big part of, of what's been happening for them. And in that instance, they might be like, well, why am I going to look at personality patterns? And why am I, why is this, why is what Alex talking about relevant? What I would say is that, well, firstly, if you've got, let's say, an achiever pattern, the way you're approach, we try and solve the problem at the level which we see the world. So if you see everything about pushing, driving, the chances are you're going to go too aggressive on protocols. You're going to try and push things too quickly. You're going to push through warning signs from your body to go slower. So you need to manage those pieces to help you manage that 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 physiological healing process. But also suffering from those symptoms that in of itself is a trauma. That in of itself will often cause a maladaptive stress response. And for some people, their journey into chronic illness is 95% physiological and 5% psychological. Other people, it might be the inverse. But most people's journey out of chronic illness necessitates a level of psycho-emotional healing even if that's just because of the experience of living through what they've been living through with the illness. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good point to bring up. And I um, you know, I think, you know, just awareness, right? This is, and then we come from a place of um, empowerment, right? And we get to use this to our um, advantage, these awarenesses to amplify our healing. I think that there can be sometimes, and I know you don't do this, but that in this conversation, people can sometimes, if they're not ready to hear it, can hear it like as victim blaming, which is not at all, you know, what we're doing. You know, we're saying like, hey, like, look at these patterns use, you know, how do we heal them and how do we also integrate them into the treatment plan so that you get the best results that you can move forward. So I, I hear you and I really appreciate everything you're saying. And, you know, I also so to try to respond as well you're saying about victim blamers. I think it's a really good point to, to raise. I, mean, I often say to people that one of the hardest things to do in life is to hold two emotional places at the same time. You can be a victim of, like a genuine victim of something. You can be a victim of a medical intervention or treatment that that's that nearly disabled your body in some way, or you could be a, a victim of a, a major childhood abuse and trauma, and you have every right and you should allow yourself to feel the rage, the injustice, the frustration, the hate, whatever it is that comes up, because you can't heal what you don't feel. You've got to let yourself have those feelings and let yourself be the victim. Yeah. But if you only stay in that place, yeah. if you're a victim, you also can't do anything about your healing because you're just a victim. Yeah. And it's how to let yourself own that place and recognize that if I want the circumstances of my life to change, I'm going to have to be the one. I don't have, I don't have to do it on my own, but I'm going to have to captain the ship of, of, of that healing process. Yeah. So it's it's like... How can you, you know, in a kind of more general healing way, how can you hate your parents for the things they didn't get right, whilst you also love them for their intention and all the things that they they did their best to get right, and to coexist in those two places? And it's many, many people watching or, or listening to this have every right to feel the victim of injustices and things that have happened to them and to their bodies. The problem is if we live in that place, we're powerless and we can have that place and have a place of recognizing that we can be proactive in our healing journey. Mm, such a great point and really beautifully stated. I, I agree. And I think awareness, processing, healing, and then moving through that and making a choice to be in a different state, you know, um, that is really the journey. And I know that your work and your team really, you know, helps facilitate that. And don't expect if you're listening uh, out there that you have to do this all on your own. I mean, this is why people are trained by Alex and people in my world are trained to, to do this. Of course, people can do a lot on their own, but typically you need that reflection, that container, that facilitator to help you really, really heal in a safe, supported way. And in my opinion, I think that especially when we are you know, on blocking traumas, you know, we, we don't know all of the things underneath that that can come up. And that's why, you know, working again with a really great support system can give you that safe space to process that in a safe way and move through it and not stay stuck in that or have that harming. I think that's a really important point. And, you know, in, in writing the book, one of the things I felt very strongly about is I wanted to write a book which really empowered people to be able to have the knowledge and the tools to be captain of the ship of their own recovery, they're not doing all the jobs on the ship. They're not steering the ship whilst bailing out the water, whilst, you know, doing the cooking. Like you need a team of people. And one of the things that I love about doing online conferences and interviewing all the people that I respect. And, you know, one of the things I've also found when you do 
enormous amounts of clinical work, you become more humble and less arrogant. And I, it always strikes me that people that have great certainty and like they, they know it all, I always find myself thinking, how much clinical work are you doing? Because my experience of doing a lot of clinical work is you you learn all the things. If if you pay attention, you learn all the limits of what you know. And, you know, that's for me one of the joys of interviewing people and realize, you know, there's people like you that I greatly respect that are doing great work. And there's lots of different places out there. And no one practitioner and no one book and no one approach has all of the answers. And that's, again, why we have to be captain of the ship. We have to be able to understand this is a missing piece of my jigsaw. So I'm going to work on this piece, but this piece might disagree with this piece, but I can also see this pieces here that can help me. And that pulling together the team that we need to support our recovery is just so important. Mm-hmm. I love that you said that. And I, I share in that um, perspective. And I, I, I know I, I sit with sometimes my patients are like, well, I saw this neurologist and they think this and this and this. I'm like, who can be this certain? You know, how, you know, like, how, <laughs> where does this, you know, certainty come from? And I, I, I'm humbled every day. The moment I think I know something, the moment, you know, I learn a different angle, you know, a different support. And then I'm also humbled in a beautiful way. Sometimes you don't expect the outcome at the right time and people shift in a way that is unexpected. We have such joy in those moments, right? And I'm always looking, I'm like, what did we do? How did that happen? (laughs) What worked? You know, so it's that dance. But I I think that I will always have my hands with clinical practice because it's why I do this. And this is what I love. And it's a teaching. It's definitely teaches me to be better and teaches us because I think we're at the forefront, right, Alex? It's like these illnesses, I mean, you talk about your journey, right? These illnesses were ahead of our language for them, right? And they still are, you know, in many ways, I think we're still pioneering and bringing in um, this new paradigm. Um, And as we record this, I mean, the world is a mess. And, you know, I think no matter where you stand on your perspective of health, that we, I think we all could agree that it needs to change, right? We need another, another way, more tools, you know, more access. And so we're in that, still that really pioneering, innovating, bringing through what I call the future of medicine, you know, through. And I know that your, your work is doing that. And so I, I just, am, yeah, always grateful for our connection and learning from you. And you got me thinking about a lot of things, but no, I am grateful for that. Brilliant. Thank you, Christine, so much. It's always a treat to spend time together. Yeah. Yeah. So Alex, um, I could talk to you for like another few hours, but I would love to just have you share, like, I'm sure a lot of people are intrigued by your work, your perspective, your map. So how can people um, connect with you in a deeper way and learn more from you? So the simplest place is to go to my website, which is alexhoward.com. And just to point to a few things that you can find there. So I talked quite a bit today around the maladaptive stress response and the nervous system. And I have a a 12-week online in-depth coaching program called the Reset Program, which really teaches people the tools and the strategies to cultivate that healing state. And at alexhoward.com, there's a free three-part video series that unpacks what we talked about today in in a lot more detail. So that's a great way people can sign up for that and and get much more kind of in-depth and some of the science and background behind some of these ideas. I also, I do a lot of online conferences. So conferences on fatigue, trauma, relationships. So people will find signposts to those. I also, something that is a kind of pet love of mine, I love clinical work and I feel very passionate about the idea of breaking some of the stigma around particularly psycho and emotional health. And so I have a YouTube series called In Therapy where each week we release a filmed therapy session of me working with with a client and they're 
that the more recent episodes, they're pretty much unedited. So it's the whole session. It's quite nicely produced. We have a really good team that, that produce it. And then through the week, we pull out some of the key moments and in shorter videos as well. Um, so people, they'll find signposting to that through my website. But if you want to sort of see some of these ideas in action with some incredibly brave participants that are willing just to share their therapeutic journeys in a kind of unedited raw way, it's, I think, a great way just to see these ideas in action. What a inspiration, right? And as you said, brave, you know, patients who are sharing their, you know, story. But I, I think that's brilliant, Alex. So kudos to you. And I, I just love to hear all that you're doing and all the wonderful work that you're putting out into the world. So it's just lovely to have you on the podcast. We'll have the link to your website in the show notes. And I'm sure we'll be speaking again soon. So thank you, Alex. Wonderful, Christine. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed my show today with Alex Howard. You can find out more about Alex at his website, alexhoward.com. And if you've been enjoying these podcasts, I'd be so honored to hear from you. If you want to leave a review on iTunes or message me at info at drchristineshoffner.com. I am committed in this season of 2022 to bring you informative, innovative, cutting edge education so that you can live your best life.